This is the Mark Podcast from Lifeway Women. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Heineman and Kelly King. Each episode, we'll talk about what God is doing, how He has and is marking each of us. Sometimes that will be through interviews, and sometimes we'll have conversations around the table. We're so glad you've joined us today. LifeWay Women events are gospel-centered, worship-filled, high-energy experiences for women of all ages. Whether you're in the room or joining us virtually from around the world via simulcast, at LifeWay Women events, you'll dive into the Bible with teachers like Priscilla Shirer, Lisa Turkhurst, Jackie Hill Perry, Lisa Harper, Jen Wilkin, and more. Learn how to study scripture for yourself, laugh with friends, and leave invigorated to follow God's calling in your life. Find a city near you or learn about our digital events at lifeway.com forward slash women's events. Hello and welcome to the Mark Podcast. I am Elizabeth Heineman and I am here with my co-host Kelly King. Hey Kelly. Hey, Elizabeth. Let's tell our audience a little bit about what's happening this summer. I know. It is so exciting. So we have been, for the past few summers, we have been blessed and able to release to y'all the audio teaching from some of our Bible studies. And we are so excited because this summer we are bringing to you, to your ears, the audio sessions of How Much More, a Bible study by Lisa Harper. And so tell us a little bit more about how this is all going to work, Kelly. Absolutely. So on Mondays, we'll release one new audio teaching session each week. And we're going to leave all of the episodes up until the end of August, so August 31st. So if you get a couple weeks behind or maybe you're on vacation, we want to make sure that you're able to catch up and do that. So what we want you to do is we want you to go to lifeway.com slash how much more, and we really want you to purchase the Bible study book because it's going to help you really learn more than just listening to the audio, but work alongside of it with the study book. And that link is going to be in the show notes as well. And we just know that y'all are going to be so blessed by this study. And so we're excited to get to bring it to you. So here is Lisa Harper. Welcome back to session three of How Much More. I can't even tell you how excited I am about this session because we're kind of diving into a real spicy, romantic chapter of redemptive narrative. And before we dive into this book, that's one of my favorites in the Old Testament, I want to give you an illustration from my romantic life, which is decidedly less spicy. Um, I'm 57 and single, have never been married. My husband is lost, won't stop to ask for directions. And a friend was over at my house not too long ago, and we were sitting on the back of our property. Missy and I live on this little hilly farmette south of Nashville, five acres. And we were sitting on the back of the property, and I was telling her with great enthusiasm how excited I was because I'm finally at the point in my life that I'm going to get to buy a used John Deere tractor. And I was just really fired up because since we've had this tiny little farmette, there have been several instances where I needed a tractor, and I don't have one. And she listened, and I could tell she was 
troubled with what I was saying. And after I finished telling her how excited I was about this tractor, she said, Lisa, you don't need a tractor. You, you really need a husband. <laughs> and then she began to lecture me about the fact that I was not putting any energy into getting married. And she told me that I really, really needed to invest some time in an online dating program. And um, I told her that that's just not really my style. You know, I said, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I've seen the commercials. I've seen those darling couples gazing adoringly at each other. So I know it happens for some people. But I said, you know, I'm old school and old. And so that just, I'm just not comfortable with that. I said, it's not, you know, quite as, as desperate as like hiring a plane with a banner, you know, 1-800-588, please call Lisa for a date. <laughs> but it feels like it's in the same genre. And so I said, I just, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. And so then she said, said, Lisa, it's your pride. She said, the only reason you won't try online dating is your pride. And I thought, you know, maybe she's right, because my pride has got me into trouble before. And so I decided to try a three-month membership. It was a trial membership with a Christian online dating, um, I guess you call it a company. And I'm not going to take the time to enumerate the catastrophes that ensued. <laughs> I'm just going to tell y'all one. Just one single story will kind of give you the gist of my experience. There was this one fella, and he just seemed lovely online. Um, he was really witty. I mean, he just sent the funniest emails, and he spelled correctly, and that's a huge deal to me. I'm just big about grammar. Like, I'd rather have a guy who can spell and punctuate correctly than broad shoulders. And so that was cool. He used spell check. And then um, he was um, employed. And that... <laughs> Is just, I mean, I don't want to, you know, throw anybody under the bus. No big deal if you're not employed. But he did not live with his parents and had a job. And I was like, that is just awesome because when you're in your 50s, it just helps if they don't live <laughs> with their parents. And so I was like, this is really, you know, showing some promise. And so we traded emails for a couple of weeks, and it was really getting, you know, not spicy, it, it, but like Christian Levitical spicy. <laughs> like there's a little promise. There's a little hope. And so he told me that he really would like to meet face to face. And I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of feeling a little something, something too. And, and you know, you tell he loves Jesus and, you know, the whole employment thing was positive. And, and so I said, yes, that I would meet him face to face, you know, at just a, a safe place, a restaurant, middle of the day between where both of us lived. And that's when he sent this really long um, message qualifying his employment and he explained to me this is very very pre-covid he explained to me that his job was exclusively online that he was not able to work outside the home uh, for two reasons one is he has severe social anxiety and then the second reason is he was very very concerned about if he left his home for more than an hour about the emotional stability of the dozens and dozens and dozens of cats he had adopted <laughs> And um, I want to be very clear here. I, I do not want to in any way disparage um, nervous people with cats. I like going to the tractor supply store and looking at accoutrements for tractors. This is an aside, but any of you, especially single girls who haven't had enough affirmation, I'm just telling you, if you're not feeling especially attractive, go to the tractor supply store. <laughs> 
Because I'm telling you, when I feel like a dowdy old spinster, I go into that store for dog food or a shovel and I come out and I'm like, I am hot. I am a queen. This is amazing. Anyway, that's neither here, here nor there. But, but I just thought, you know, it, it nothing to do with him, but I'm an extrovert and I, I travel for a living and my daughter is allergic to, to cats. So I thought this probably, you know, this probably doesn't have any longevity. And so I thought, I, I just need to email this guy. He's so nice. I need to email him and just tell him that, that we probably shouldn't meet because there's, there's probably no future in our relationship because I, I probably, homebound probably wouldn't work for me. And so, so I, I thought about it that afternoon because I wanted to be, you know, you want to be gracious. You haven't met these people yet. And I thought I want to be really, really appropriate. And that week I was heavily medicated because I had pneumonia and a double ear infection and my doctor had given me a really, really strong antibiotic as well as a steroid. And I hardly ever take meds, and so I'm very affected by medicine. And so my doctor said, I'm also going to prescribe Ambien for you as a sleep aid because the steroid will definitely cause you to have insomnia as reactionary as you are to medicine. And so, you know, I had prayed about this message to this sweet fella, and, and then I fell asleep. And uh, woke up the next morning, and, and I panicked when I realized my, my iPad was in bed next to me. Because the only other time I've taken my iPad to bed with me when I was on a sleep aid, I, I signed up for a year's worth of a coffee club <laughs> that I couldn't get out of, and I was this close to buying a timeshare in Cabo. And so <laughs> when I saw the iPad, I was like, oh! I just panicked and I thought, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm afraid I sent him a note when I was agitated on this sleep aid. And so I kind of panicked. I went into that Christian dating app and I started sorting through my messages. And of course I had sent him a message late the night before. And y'all, to this day, I, I can't explain how my brain scrambled. Um, I maybe in the future will get to meet your cats with maybe someday I can sit on your lap um, because I'm not a trashy girl. I'm really, I'm super, super conservative and I don't know why if it was Freudian, I don't know how I did that, but I just panicked. There it was in bold. Maybe one day I could sit on your lap and I was like, oh, I mean, I just panicked. I just panicked. That was the very end of my online dating excursion. Um, it was it was a horrible, horrible end. And that's kind of the gist of my romantic life. Uh, now, I hope yours is a little more exciting, a little more fulfilling, but I'm at that age and stage of recognizing that even my friends who are happily married, there's no perfect intimacy in a human relationship. Even happily married men and women, there's a hit and a miss sometimes. Maybe not as big as mine, but there's a, there's a hit and a miss. And that's because after the fall, there's no way we can love each other perfectly the way God created us to be loved, as we talked about in an earlier session, as His image bears, Imago Day. We were wired for perfect unconditional love and perfect intimacy. And that's not just possible. I mean, that's just not possible in, in this broken world, but we, we long for it. And I think the problem comes when we superimpose the experience we've had with other people, subconsciously or consciously, 
onto the character and the personhood of God. And we superimpose that idea that there's no way a perfect God like that could absolutely love a damaged woman or a damaged man like me. And I think sometimes we settle for mediocrity in our relationship with God when what He has for us is a perfect, wholesome intimacy that is absolutely fulfilling. It's what we were created for. And so that's why I'm excited about studying this book that has the reputation sometimes as being the Daniel steel of Scripture. It's called the Song of Songs. So open your Bibles, head to the Psalms, and then go to the right, just a couple of pages, and you will find the Song of Songs. That's the formal title of this book. And the Song of Songs is Hebrew idiom denoting the superlative. In other words, this particular song is the best song in God's estimation than any song ever, ever recorded, ever sung. So I don't care if you love Adele or Keith Urban or Chris Tomlin. In God's estimation, this song is the all-time Grammy award-winning song. It's the song. Your Bible may classify it as the Song of Solomon because some translations call it that because most theologians agree that either Solomon wrote this song or it was written about Solomon. And so before we dive into it, I want to kind of pull the nose of the plane up and give you a 30,000 foot view because there are lots and lots and lots of misunderstandings about this poetical love story. First of all, uh, a lot of people think that it's just metaphor. There's several different ways people interpret it, but one of the main interpretive styles is that it's allegory is that this is just symbolic. And I think sometimes that's because Christians, we just get uncomfortable with things that are a little racy. It's like, this is, this is a little bit too intimate. Let's just go back to something we can flannel graph or cross stitch. You know, this is, this is getting a little bit too close to what I long for. And the problem with an allegorical interpretive style is it suggests that, that this is just fantasy, that these characters aren't real. And this is a historical tale. There really was a guy named Solomon. Y'all remember him, he's David's smart son, not the one that was infatuated with hair care products, that's Absalom. Solomon's a smart son, and he's the third king of Israel. You've got Saul, you've got David, you've got Solomon. And then the woman in this story, we don't actually find out her name until chapter six, but her name is Shulamith. And what's so cool about her name is her name is the feminine derivative of the masculine name Solomon. So they're kind of like, Robert and Roberta, I think that's so cool. And, and so we're not gonna go with allegorical as we look at it in this session. We're also not gonna go with erotic. Now I know that sounds crazy, but some scholars will tell you that they believe the Song of Songs was written to kind of combat or level out some Mesopotamian erotica that was written during the same time period. So it's almost like God breathed this story into existence just to kind of clean up the other tawdry tales that were out there about love and intimacy. Um, I'll tell you in a minute why I don't agree that that's a great interpretive style. The third most common interpretive style for the Song of Songs is a natural or literal approach. You'll have preachers who usually they only go to this book in the Bible when they're at a marriage retreat. But they'll open up this book in the Bible to marriage retreat and they'll say, now we can take from what we read in the Song of Songs and apply it to human courtship and human marriage 
and sexual intimacy within marriage. The problem with that is Jesus doesn't endorse that kind of, that kind of interpretive understanding when it comes to God's Word. And I'll prove that to you. Head backwards. I had you turn to Song of Solomon already, but I'm sorry. Head forward to Luke, Luke's Gospel, the very end of Luke's Gospel. You probably know the story. I love this story before we go back into the spicy one. This is post that first Easter, and it's two fellas who are walking home to Emmaus in the suburbs from Jerusalem after having just witnessed that first Easter. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Don't you wish we had pictures in our Bibles? I mean, I just love to see this. These two guys, they're dejected because they didn't understand at all what had just happened. Most people didn't, even Jesus' own disciples. They were just discombobulated by it. They thought, goodness gracious, he came in at the beginning of the week and everybody was Hosanna And then now he was crucified. We thought he was going to rescue us from out from under Roman oppression. And instead they crucified him. And they're just dejected. You can almost picture them just kind of kicking rocks as they're walking home to Emmaus. And then Jesus appears next to him, but they didn't recognize him right away. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In other words, where have you been under a rock? Because everybody knows what just happened in Jerusalem. And then it says he goes on to tell Jesus what had just happened to Jesus. Well, there's this guy and he was born in... I mean, I tell Jesus the whole story, which is just a hoot. You can just picture Jesus like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then what did he do? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So they tell Jesus the whole story. And when they finish the story, here's what Jesus says. Verse 25. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus started first five books of Torah, the Pentateuch, and then he goes all the way to the end of the Old Testament to Malachi, if you're of an Italian background, Malachi, and he goes, all this is about me. All of this points to me. He doesn't just appear in Matthew. He doesn't just come in his incarnate state as a baby in a barn in Bethlehem. He's been there from the very beginning. I've already told y'all why it drives me crazy when people say only Jesus said the red words. I'm like, he's there in every word. He's there on every page. This is his story. That's what he told those fellas walking from Emmaus, from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. He said, it's all about me. So we're going to look at the Song of Songs as a historical tale that actually happened, but also as a Christological story. Because Jesus said, I'm going to give you this story. I'm going to give you this, this living illustration as, as a metaphor, a living metaphor, so that you can begin to believe and understand how much more my love and my intimacy for you is than you have settled for. And the story, Song of Songs, 
told you it's about the, a guy named Solomon and a girl named Shulamith. And it reads kind of different because it was written in a Hebraic a poet, poetical style. It's not narrative. So you have to kind of work to find the application and to get the color of the story. So I'm going to give you a little bit of commentary as we go along. And it's written almost like you would write a play. So Shulamith, she's like the first lady the leading lady in the story, and Solomon is like the leading man. And the story starts with her voice. This is how she literally starts the story. Verse 2 of Song of Songs, chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Do you know what that's translated from in Hebrew? Hubba, hubba, hubba. I am so into you. That's almost what she's saying. I mean, that's, that's to me a little worse than I'd like to maybe one day sit on your lap. That is so, so forward. And when I first started reading this in my 20s, and by the way, in rabbinic tradition, they don't even let guys who are studying to be rabbis read this until they're in their 30s because it's so intense, they're afraid it'll blow their hard drives. And I started reading this in my 20s thinking I was kind of sneaking. It's almost like eating donuts when you're doing keto. It's like, I'm not sure I'm allowed to read this because I'm single and this is kind of racy. And I'd been taught this only applies to marriage. And when I first started reading this, I was like, that girl just doesn't even seem biblical. You know, because I grew up in the South. My mama taught me from my earliest memories, girls are not supposed to chase boys. Boys are initiators, girls are responders, don't put notes in their lockers. This is before texting, but she would have had a cow if I text a boy. She's like, Lisa, if you chase them now, you'll be chasing them for the rest of your life. Now, that philosophy actually hasn't worked that well for me since I've <laughs> you know, got discounts at McDonald's, but no husband. And so I'm not positive. I can't totally concur with my mama's philosophy, but that's what I was raised with. It's in the marrow of my bones that a woman should not be forward, especially in the context of romance. So when I would first read this, I'm like, this doesn't even seem biblical, you know? I mean, this woman's just saying, hubba, 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 I want a relationship with you. It's shocking to me. Again, y'all, we do ourselves such a disservice when we take our human experience and superimpose that on the perfect love accessible to us through Jesus Christ. God is not a regular Romeo. You don't have to be coy to allure God's compassion. He wants us to bring all of us to all of Him. Speaking of laps, head to the right to Mark. Mark chapter 10, this will give us just a little more color to what Jesus was saying. Mark chapter 10, you know the story. If like me, you grew up half Baptist, you've definitely seen this one flannel graphed or in VBS. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So if that were to happen in, in 
our century, in modern culture, it might look like Jesus and the disciples have gone to the mall and there's no COVID. You can like go to the mall and you don't have to wear a mask and you can go to Chick-fil-A, which is where I assume they would have been standing and ordering <laughs> because it's Chick-fil-A. And so, so, you know, the rest of the disciples, they've gone down to get camping equipment from REI because they're mostly transient and it's Jesus and Pete standing in front of Chick-fil-A and, and they're starting to order and there's some little boys at a round table over here and their mamas are at the table adjacent to them. And these little boys, they're homeschool kids. And so their mamas were just so worn, slap out because it had been raining. They decided to do a lesson on capitalism at the mall. And so the mamas are kind of, you know, half dead over here at this table, just thinking, give me five minutes to have adult talk. Little boys are over here, they're so fired up there in the mall and they're all hyped up on sugar. And one of them recognizes Jesus. Because during Mark's gospel, at that point, a lot of people recognized Jesus. They didn't necessarily put their trust in him as the Messiah, but they knew who he was. And so one of those little boys said, oh, that's Yeshua. I saw him on JNN. Let's go over and see if we can meet him and take a selfie. And those little boys jump up and they take off toward Jesus before their mamas can stop them. But right before they get to Jesus, Peter steps in front of those kids and he goes, ho, 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 y'all hang on just a second. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Y'all are all sticky. Y'all have apple pie goo on your shirts. You go back to your mamas and you go to the bathroom and you clean up and then you come back here and you form a single file line and then maybe you can meet the Messiah. And Jesus says, oh, Pete, let him pass. I love messy kids. Y'all, that's the gist of the story in Mark's gospel. Again, I'm taking a little liberty with the Greek, but that's the gist of the story. So when we hold ourselves back from God and call that holy, that is not biblically defensible. Remember, Paul himself said every single word in this biblical narrative is breathed by God. So this seemingly racy story, it's every bit as biblical as the systematic theology in the New Testament. It's just we avoid it because it gets a little too close, usually to the places we've been wounded. And that seems to be what happens next in this story because after Shulamith has confessed she has a crush on Solomon. I mean, she's just kind of pulled the doors of her heart back and said, I would love a relationship with you. All of a sudden, the narrative shows her starting to backpedal. Have you ever said something in a small group? You think, I love these girls. I mean, this is a safe place. And you just tell them something vulnerable and they all get all nervous. And like everybody closes their quilted Bible covers and you're like, shoot, I thought it was a safe place. But man, I wish I could pull those words back in my mouth. That's, that's pretty much what happens here. After she says, I would love to have a relationship with you, she just starts backpedaling. I don't know if her insecurity got the better of her, but after saying, I would love to kiss you, Shulamith backs up and says, verse five, I'm very dark, but lovely. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Keter, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I'm dark because the sun has looked on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I haven't kept. I told you this is centuries old Hebraic poetry. So sometimes it's hard to understand exactly what she's saying or her intent. Basically she's saying, what in the world have I just done? 
I just told the king of Israel that I have a crush on him. I'm just a regular girl. I've got calluses on my hands from the weed eater. I just came home from tractor supply. <laughs> what in the world was I thinking that a guy like that would be into a girl like me? He could have anybody. He could have a girl with gold mani petties and blowouts every day and a Louie and a girl who didn't have to wear Spanx. What in the world was I thinking to tell a guy like that that I would love for him to reciproc reciprocate my affection? Can you see it? I was at a, an event recently and I was wearing a skirt. And a friend of mine was there. And when I came off the stage, she said, Lisa, you have really pretty legs. And I was so embarrassed by her sincere compliment because I'm in a season in life where I'm just, just a bit fluffy. <laughs> and I immediately said, oh, you, you must need glasses. And I watched her face just go from giving me a gift to going, why didn't you receive it? How much more damaging is it for us when God says you are beautiful and wonderfully made and we back up and don't receive his gift? I came to Christ when I was five years old. My dad had left our family and I was visiting a little Baptist church with my mom where Brother Jimmy began talking about how God is a father who doesn't leave his kids. He doesn't walk away from his kids. And I remember just being so compelled by the idea that God wouldn't abandon me, that I, I stood there. They had to stand up for the last hymn. They sang Just As I Am. And, you know, they sang it like 35 times. And I held on to the back of that pew. How many of y'all are under 40? Pews are long wooden benches, baby. <laughs> used, to, used to sit on them in church, and I held on to the back of a, a pew, and then I just couldn't stay there any longer. It's like I was just compelled to walk down that aisle to tell Brother Jimmy that I wanted a real relationship with God, that I wanted to have that kind of a love relationship with a dad who wouldn't walk away from me. So I became a Christian when I was a little kid, but I didn't think God liked me very much. I felt like he had lowered the bar to allow me to step into a relationship with him. I knew he had saved me from my sins as much as you can understand that as a little kid, but I thought he was probably disappointed that he let me into the kingdom because right after my daddy left us, some men came and went from our family who sexually molested my sister and I, and I had some more of those experiences when I was in, in high school and college, and I just felt dirty. And so I thought, there's just no way a perfect God like that could delight in a girl like me. What's stunning in this story is after Shelemite confesses her insecurity, there's probably no way a guy like you would actually be interested in a girl like me. The response from Solomon, who soon becomes her groom, and remember, metaphorically, he represents Jesus, our divine bridegroom. The response from Solomon is just so beautiful. Verse 8, this is the first time he speaks. 
in the narrative. If you do not know, oh, most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Verse 15, behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. I mean, there's no quibbling around there. Now, some of you may think, why does he compare her to a horse? You know, like she had long face and big teeth or something. No, he's doing what men do today. I had a, a friend recently who said her husband had compared her to a Tesla. And I was like, that's just his way of saying, I think you have beautiful lines. You know, he, he used a masculine metaphor to say, I want to be with you too. I've checked the box. Yes, I'm with you too. I'm so in to you for the sake of time I won't go through their courtship it's so lovely it's the sweetest courtship but I want to take you right to the engagement it's in chapter 3 it's so symbolic if you know the stories of Israel and them coming up out of the wilderness it's just beautifully symbolic verse 6 of Song of Solomon chapter 3 what is that coming up from the wilderness and this is her voice again this is Shulamite's voice again and she's standing at the the top of the hill in Jerusalem. If you ever get the chance to go to literal geopolitical, the country of Israel, you'll find that Jerusalem, that holy city, it's at the top of a hill. That's why the Psalms of Ascent are called the Psalms of Ascent, because they would, they would sing those songs as they were hiking up. So she's standing at the top of Jerusalem. She's watching Solomon coming toward her. This is their engagement party. This is just prior to the wedding ceremony. She's standing next to some stage of the temple. Remember, Solomon built the temple that his daddy drew out the blueprints for. God said, David, you've got too much blood on your hands. There's, there's too much drama in your backstory. So your son is actually going to build what you dreamed. And so we don't know for sure what stage of construction the temple was in. It may have just been a few blocks. It may have been higher up. But she's standing there. And y'all, this is a huge wedding because at this point in Israel's history, Israel was a powerful political player. And so this would be a state wedding, a royal wedding, kind of like Harry and Meghan. I mean, this is a big, big, big deal. And so she's narrating as he's coming up, the king of Israel, he's already been coronated king, he's coming up the hill to give, his, to, to give her his ring, this regular girl. So she says, who is this that's coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. So he's being carried by the mighty men of Israel. Do y'all remember who those are? Remember how David, his daddy, established kind of the, almost like the green berets of the Israeli army? So they're these just really tough dudes, and they're carrying Solomon on a litter. If you've seen Aladdin with your kids or grandkids, you know, he's being toted on basically a litter. She goes on to say that it has silver post, and he's sitting reclined on a purple pillow. So it's very royal, 
a little bit comedic. This is one of my favorite things in that processional because she says in verse 11, go out, O daughters of Zion. That's just her posse. Those are her girlfriends. And look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. She's like, I can't believe this is happening. I mean, just two weeks ago, I was a regular girl. I didn't have any followers on Instagram. And now I'm about to be the queen of Israel and then he faces her and they begin the wedding ceremony and at this point in ancient history they had their own vows they didn't have the New Testament vows we're used to in Christian culture so they weren't those formal vows also wasn't the informal vows sometimes that kids do nowadays doesn't it drive you nuts when you go to an informal wedding with two 20 year olds who make up their own Wedding vows. Sorry, that's just me. I shouldn't, shouldn't go there. It's like bad Bee Gees lyrics. You know, I will never, ever get mad at you. I'm like, liar, liar, pants on fire. Anyway, Solomon speaks these promises to Shelemith. Remember, there's everybody's watching. It's a royal wedding. He turns to her, this very regular girl, not unlike us. And he says this, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Mount Gilead. I might should pause there for just a second. For any of y'all who haven't perused the Song of Songs, he's not saying she needs better conditioner. He's, he's again using simile. He's using a metaphor. Solomon grew up in Israel where one of the highest mountains was Mount Gilead. He could see Mount Gilead when he went camping with his daddy. And he remembers as a young man watching black goats coming down from those top pastures down toward the lower pastures being driven by shepherds, bringing them to safer pastures away from predators. And usually they would herd them down just as the sun was setting. And so he remembers as a young boy watching those black ribbons coming down just encircling Mount Gilead. He's not saying that her hair needs to be washed or blown out. He's saying you have long, wavy, dark hair. And then he says that her teeth are like sheep that have just been washed. All of them have a twin. What's he saying there? Young talk back? Good teeth. Good teeth, good teeth. And this is pre-dental care, y'all. She has all her teeth. That's like a huge deal. He says, you have a beautiful smile. He says, her cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. What's he saying there? Yeah, she doesn't need to go get makeup. She has natural pink in her cheeks. He says her neck is long and elegant. And then we're going to go here because it's all girls in here. I want to go to a verse that you hardly ever hear in church, but I just love this verse. He says, verse 5, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Um, I'm a country girl. And so every spring I see baby deer out where we live. They're on our property. Have you all ever seen baby deer? especially when there's like two behind a mama deer. You know how they've got the spots on their bottoms. They're just so cute. What adjectives come to mind when y'all see baby deer? Oh, it's not an adjective, but it's what we feel. Any adjectives? Lovely, precious, soft. You just want to pet them, don't you? That's exactly what he's saying. It's their wedding night. This isn't tawdry. They're getting married. And he says, I want to pet your baby deer. Um, 
again, this is holy. The Bible is holy, but y'all, it's accessible. These are not rigid stories. It's real life. We have a real redeemer who loves us. He does not want us to have this rigid, formal relationship with him. He is perfectly holy. And somehow in his sovereignty, he's also perfectly accessible. So he gives us stories we can relate to. Speaking of relatable, when you get to the end of the story, and we won't go there in this session, but when you get to the end of the story, they have a problem in their marriage because it's a real marriage. And, um, and they're separated for a little while. And by now they've been married for a long time and they have kids. And when they reconcile, when they come back together after that problem chapter, he describes her body again, just like he did on their wedding night. And when he describes her body a second time, he doesn't describe her upper half as twin fawns that graze among the lilies. He, he describes them as hanging bunches of grapes. <laughs> It's awesome that it's in the Bible. But my favorite, my favorite verse in the Song of Solomon in this wedding chapter, one of my favorite verses actually in all of Scripture is in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 9, where this king says to this commoner in front of everybody with one glance, with one glance, of your eyes, you captured my heart. Man, it took me decades to actually believe that the Son of the Most High God would stand in front of me and gaze into my eyes and say, Lisa, just one glance, one glance of your eyes, you captured my heart. One of my favorite love stories outside of Scripture is about a man and his wife named Robert Robertson McQuil McQuilkin. Dr. McQuilkin is a respected academic author, preacher, and teacher. This was in an article in Christianity Today. Who served as the president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina for 22 years. He and his wife, Muriel, had a busy life with social obligations and travel on behalf of the university, as well as the delightful busyness that comes with having six grown children and several grandchildren. When she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and normal life came to an abrupt halt for her. For the first few years, with the help of a caretaker, friends and family, Dr. McQuilkin continued his duties at Columbia, but Muriel's illness progressed quickly and she became increasingly difficult to manage, especially when he was at work. If she couldn't find him as she wandered from room to room, she became agitated, even panicked. The round trip between the McQuilkins' home and his office was one mile. And some days Muriel was wily enough to dodge whoever was watching her and make the trip 10 times. Dr. McQuilkin talks about the many times who took off her shoes at night only to find that her feet were bloody from walking to and from his office. <clears throat> because he was still young, he was in his 50s, as was she. And at the height of his career, many people urged him to put Muriel in a nursing home and focus on his job. But he never even entertained that possibility. He made the controversial decision to resign from Columbia in order to stay home and take care of her. He fed her, nursed her, and bathed her 
until she died. When asked about the difficulty of caring for Muriel, he said, love takes the sting out of duty. I think so many of us labor under the misconception that God loves us because it is in his job description as the creator redeemer of the universe. And so we labor along dutifully, just trying to be good girls, hoping we don't disappoint God, our heavenly father. And this story proves that he doesn't see us as an interruption or an inconvenience. He says, this daughter right here is my beloved with one glance, one glance of her eyes. She captured my heart. I think if we could really get even some small measure of the extraordinary affection God has for us, the unconditional love, the perfect intimacy, I think it would change the posture of our heart and quite possibly the trajectory of our lives. Would y'all just bow your heads for a minute? And I want you to just marinate in the reality of that lyric with one glance of your eyes. You captured my heart. Can you picture Jesus? The one who loves us more than we can possibly ask or imagine. Can you picture Jesus in front of you, speaking that promise to you, not with a furrowed brow, but with a countenance lit with unconditional love for you. One glance, one glance of your eyes. You captured my heart. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm probably the chief sinner of this beautiful group of women when it comes to actually believing the promises you breathed. It's hard for me to rest in your affection. It's hard for me to meet your gaze and believe that you're saying just one glance, Lisa, and you captured my heart. Father, forgive me for the places in my heart where I still have insecurity and unbelief. And I pray like that daddy in Mark's gospel, Jesus, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Through your spirit, I pray you would invade the fearful corners of my heart with the stunning reality of your gospel that a commoner like me has captured the heart of you, the king of the world, the King of all kings. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, that you do see me through rose-colored glasses. Thank you, Jesus, that you call me beautiful on my worst day. Lord, help us all to lean into the truth of your unconditional love. Help us to actually be the bride that you say that we are. We ask th these things by the authority of your name, Jesus, by the power of the blood you chose to shed on our behalf, and we ask them for your purposes. 
Amen and amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly D. King and at E.D. Heineman. Use the hashtag Marked Podcast to connect with us. You can also find Lifeway Women on all social media channels at Lifeway Women. All of today's show notes will be posted at LifewayWomen.com slash podcast. If you love the show, leave an iTunes review. It's a great way for other people to hear about the podcast. We'll see you next time.